you would open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1, we're going to read the whole of Psalm chapter 1 so we get a sense of the context. We're only going to look at verse 1 this morning. And uh, by the way, you have two sets of notes in your, or you have two places for notes in your bulletin. One is an orange sheet. Um, it's filled in so you don't have anything to draw on. No, I'm teasing. One side is the blanks if you'd like to follow along and fill in as you go and learn that way. For those of you who want the answers, they're on the flip side. <laughs> Makes it really easy for you. So uh, anyway, that's our outline for today. Psalm chapter 1, hear then the word of the Lord, inspired by the Holy Spirit, blessed and preserved by God for our benefit, where God writes this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of waters that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Praise God for his word. Pray with me, will you please? Almighty Lord God and Heavenly Father, we continue in your presence in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our prayer is that now as we look into your word, you teach us. Father, we ask for grace. First and foremost, grace to pay attention. It's comfortable, it's warm, the seats are nice, the preacher drones, we fall asleep. Lord, give us grace just to be awake, to pay attention, listening to what it is that you have to say to us. Secondly, give us intentions. Attention, intentions, because I, I believe in John chapter 7, verse 17, God says that uh, if we're going to understand, it's because we've chosen before we hear the word of God, that we're going to do what God says. So give us grace to be attentive about what we hear, to put into practice what we learned this morning by your grace. And then that's the grace that we ask for. Grace that enables us to live an impossible Christian life for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, whose glory we seek. Amen. There was a movie a number of years ago uh, called The Pursuit of Happiness. I think that title is based on uh, the United States Constitution. You know, we're, we're told in our Constitution that we have God-given rights. Inalienable, inalienable. When I wake up, I'll learn how to talk. When we are given certain rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So this movie by Will Smith was about the pursuit of happiness, but the bottom line was it was about the pursuit of money. And there was an equation as you watched the movie between how much money you had and how happy you were. And there are times when we think coming to faith in Christ is about being made happy. For what it's worth, for about 30 years now at least, I've been aware of the fact that I, I don't think Jesus died to make you happy. <laughs> I think Jesus died to make you holy. However... The Bible talks so much about the concept of joy and so much about the concept of being blessed that God, I think, does want us to make or, or be happy. But happy needs to be redefined. 
See, you and I look at happiness as something that's circumstantial. If our circumstances are good, we're happy. You know, in Wisconsin, uh, we complain a lot. I think that's our favorite pastime, especially about the weather. You know, it's too hot in the summer, it's too cold in the winter. And we long for the other season. We, just, we complain all the time. It's too rainy. Too, you got, we complain instead of being content with our circumstances. But we look in America for happiness that comes because of outside circumstances. At best, that's fleeting. You get it for a couple of moments, and then it goes away. But the joy, the blessedness about which God speaks is permanent. God says it'll well up inside you. In fact, the word that's translated joy in the New Testament has to do with something that bubbles up on the inside and you can't contain it. You always have that regardless of your circumstances because you are always forgiven by God, graced by God. You are always the son or daughter of God. You always have what God has given you in Jesus Christ. And that should produce in you tremendous joy. So, in a sense, there is a happiness, if you equate that with biblical joy and biblical blessedness. And what we're looking at in Psalm chapter 1, and Psalm 1 is what's known as wisdom, all of it's wisdom literature, but it's especially known as a wisdom psalm. Wisdom psalms are either, um, yeah, I've lost my word. That's what happens when you get up really early and you're not used to doing that. What... It's, it's a formula for prosperity. Again, it's prosperity the way God defines prosperity. A formula for happiness. In fact, the word that's translated blessed, ashrei ish is the Hebrew phrase, if you're interested. If you're not, the Hebrew phrase is ashrei ish. But God intends that we understand that the blessed man is the one about whom it can be said, Oh, the happinesses of the man who. That's Ashrei Ish. God wants us to understand happiness from his perspective, be happy in him. And the formula for that is verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 1. Now, it's stated negatively in Psalm 1. It's stated positively in Psalm 2. That's another sermon for another day. But, and then in, in chapter, or excuse me, in verse 3, He defines what it is. He says this is the measure of it. And then he contrasts that with what happens to wicked people and tells us what the end results are for all of us. We're going to look this morning just at three phrases in chapter 1. I've given to you this morning is simply the, uh, the wicked walk, the sinful stand, and I put the scornful, uh, seat because I memorized this psalm in the King James, it's scornful in the King James, it's scoffer in the ESV, which you are using. So the scoffer see. But we're going to look at those three phrases. What we're really going to do is look at nine words this morning. Because each of those phrases has three very important words in them that's going to help us to understand what is this prosperity formula that God's given us, this formula for happiness, and how it is that we're going to enjoy God's happiness, even in this life. So let's dig in. The first phrase that he gives deals with this idea of the wicked walk. He says it this way. He says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Three words we're going to look at there. We're going to look at walk, counsel, and wicked. Walk. 
Please note, it doesn't say run. There's there's another verse that deals with running. It says, uh, blessed is the man, or he doesn't say blessed, but it says the man who waits on the Lord will renew his strength. He will soar like eagles, run and not be weary, walk and not faint. The walk idea is simply putting one foot in front of another. It's the means by which we get from one place to another. The speed is not what's important. The destination is not even important. What's important is the means by which you get there. And I think in the Old Testament, as well as in the New, what he's saying really is, how do you conduct yourself in this life? It has to do with our behavior. It has to do with the way that we live. So it's not so much... Where are you going as it is, how are you getting there? What is the, the, the behavior of your life? What is your conduct life? And then he says, what it needs to be is something opposite of this world. Then he says it this way, don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. The word counsel simply means advice. We like giving it. We don't necessarily like taking it. I got a phone call from my brother one day. He was asking me for advice. He says, I don't intend to take it, but I want your opinion anyway. (laughs) We don't like advice. We sure love to give advice. All right, God says, what I want you not to do is take the counsel of the world around you. Because the world around you operates in what I would simply call a philosophy. They have a way by which they have chosen to live that's based on a particular way of thinking. And God says, I don't want you to think like the world around you. In fact, he says it this way in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to the image of this world. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its molds, said Skitch Henderson back in the 70s. What I want you to do instead is be transformed by the renewing of your minds. It doesn't tell you there how to do it, but I think the answer is the word of God. That we begin to think God's thoughts after him because we saturate ourselves with the word of God. And our thinking is based on that. He says, what I want you to do is follow the theology of who God is. The counsel of God. Because he contrasts that with the counsel of the wicked. The word translated here, wicked, has to do with guilt. You've been judged by God and found guilty. You know, there's a class of people about whom that is true on this planet. It's called humanity. We have all been, we are born condemned by God and on our way to hell. God says, I don't want you to think like that. I want you to have a change of mind. Now, that's only going to come because God changes our minds. You and I live in a culture that wants very much to know the power of God. I'm personally convinced that uh, the, the best way to see the culture of the United States is to look at the advertising or look at the entertainment. That'll tell you what the culture is in the United States. You know, in fact, I wrote, I, I just put down three or four of them for us this morning, ads that are contrary to the, the philosophy of these ads is contrary to what God's Word says. Uh, I don't know that these are still the advertising slogans of these companies, but I, I'm, I'm old, so it, it's been a while. McDonald's, their slogan used to be, you deserve a break today. No, I deserve health today. Always have, always will. I don't deserve anything good. Burger King says, okay, have it your way. God says, no, do it my way. In fact, God says it's going to happen my way no matter what. So you might as well get used to it. L'Oreal costs a little more, but I'm worth it. 
God says, no, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. He gives grace to the humble and resists the proud. Pride comes before fall. The opposite of Vegas. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. God says, no, I'm going to shout it from the rooftops. Our world's got a totally different perspective on what happens than what God does. And he says, what I need you to do is change the way that you think. Now, the problem with our entertainment is not so much that they pitch a philosophy. They do. Um, I, I, I really like movies. But I go to movies to be entertained. I don't want to be taught anything. Don't give me some social instruction on something. Don't present something before me that, that you're trying to pitch. All I want to do is be entertained. That's it. Entertain me for a while. But Hollywood tries to teach us stuff. We don't have any problems, really, with the stuff that Hollywood teaches. We recognize that. We recognize that as wrong. That's against the Bible. The problem with movies is not what they try to teach you. I think you'll recognize all of it. The problem with movies is the assumptions that they make and on which they base that teaching. And the problem for you and me is we've already bought into those assumptions. You are born into a culture that you begin to adapt to. And you are shaped by that culture more than you are willing to admit that you are shaped by that culture. And you think like that people around you. There are three assumptions that nearly every movie in the United States makes, every TV show makes. The first is, man is good. No, man is not good. Man is a sinner, condemned before God to an eternity apart from him. But Hollywood doesn't see it that way. The second thing that they understand is that this life is the highest good. No, it's not the highest good. God's glory is the highest good. Living here and drawing breath here is absolutely wonderful. God blesses us in it. But that's not the highest good. But then, if you're in this life, then you need to be loved. And romantic love is the best love, according to Hollywood. God says, no, the best love that mankind can show is to give his life for a friend. But the best love ever is the love that God gives because he gave his life for his enemies. We need to recognize those differences. and We won't do it if our brains aren't saturated with the word of God. The problem that you and I have is that we were born not thinking that way. We are born prone to think like the world around us. We're born sinful. We are born sinners. Conceived in sin, dedicated to sin, we're going to spend our lives that way. We are suckers for what the world has to say to us. We buy into it. We make it our way of thinking. And the miracle of the gospel is that God changes hearts and minds. Our culture wants power. They want to see power. Our culture is a very spiritual culture. Again, let me point to movies. I honestly thought that there was a resurgence of the DC comic strips and the Marvel comic strips because um, of baby boomers like me. You know, we grew up with that stuff, and so I thought, you know, we make up a very large part of the population, and so I thought they were trying to cater to us. They aren't catering to us at all. They could care less about us. They want the youth market. Well, why does the youth market want to see that? Because they want to see power over the things of this life. 
And they understand that that power is going to be spiritual because nobody really possesses that kind of physical power. But they want to see it. The problem is that happens in the church too. We want to see power. In fact, we want to see miracles. We want to hear God speak. We want the revelatory miracles. We want the powerful miracles and the healings. And what we don't understand is that every time that God superintends his will on someone else and brings them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, he has changed the way they think completely. Now, they need to train it. They need to be saturated in the Word of God to get enough grace that it becomes the way that they only think. But God has already done something miraculously powerful in changing the focus and the center of your thoughts. The bottom line is that God says this, you need to have the right views. You need to have the world and life view of the Bible. We, we live in a culture that looks through the lens of our culture at the Bible and finds it wanting. But God says, I want you to turn that around. I want you to look through the lens of the Bible and see the culture. Every time that we think that there's something in the culture, some scientific finding, some archaeological dig that proves the Bible, we've demonstrated that we've got that backwards. Nothing proves the Bible. The Bible's true, period. You've set up a false standard if you've said, this proves the Bible's true. No, the Bible is true. The Bible is the lens by which we look at culture and say, it's really nice that there's something in science and in architecture or in, uh, uh, yeah, I've lost the word already, archaeology, that says, of all the things I've lost, I miss my mind the most. God says, I want you to look through the lens of my scriptures to understand your culture around you. We're prone not to, but God miraculously changes the way we are. We have a new nature. We have the ability now to think like Christ. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians. I believe it's chapter 2, the last verse. He says, we have the mind of Christ. There was a, a movie, again, called Amazing Grace. Yoan Griffith starred in it. It was about... Uh, I always get the W's mixed up. Witherspoon, I think, was an English uh, member of parliament. And he was used of God over a 50-year period to change the laws about slavery in the British Empire. But in one spot in the movie, his cook comes out to him and says, here's what we're having for supper. And he starts talking about God. And the cook looks at him and says, found God. Have we, sir? He says, no, I think he found me. Marvelous statement in that movie. God does it in us and changes the way that we think. The second phrase that I want you to look at has to do with the sinful stand. Nor stands in the way of sinners. The first thing you need to understand about that phrase is that it is not in the Hebrew written, nor stands in the way of sinners. It's written in the way of sinners, not he stands. Well, Jim, what's that got to do with anything? It's a matter of emphasis. In, in, in both the Greek and the Hebrew languages, Aramaic as well, the three languages of the Bible, the word order really doesn't matter. You can state it any way you want. You'll tell by the endings on the word or the roots of the word what the sentence means. You put it in context and you'll get it. But they put words at the front of the sentence to emphasize them. So he says, okay, here's what I need to emphasize in this part. You need to emphasize and understand the way of sinners. The way, 
It, it's simply a path, a route. But I wrote in your notes, it's a thoroughfare. Wide is the way, broad is the way that leads to destruction. That's the way of our world. You know, in our culture, they're tolerant of every way except Christianity, true biblical understanding of Jesus Christ. You can believe anything because they all go to the same place. They're right. They do. They go to hell. Every road, and they're really broad. He says, I don't want you in the thoroughfare. Narrow is the gate, straight is the way that leads to life, that leads to an understanding of who God is and what God has done for us. It's the only way. But we need to, to look and find that, that way. And he says, it's not in, in the way of sinners. And the word of sinners there, is, it, it's not the word guilty this time. It's they miss the mark. That sin is, is missing the mark. We're to aim for the glory of God. In, in our world, there are many people who do good things. But that's relative good things, you know? I, I think about the, uh, the deacon budget at New Hope Church. They really don't have one because they spend whatever comes in. But it only comes to between 6 and 7% of the budget of New Hope Church. Um, we don't have a, a huge budget. United Way, Red Cross, they all have much bigger budgets than the church will ever have. But nothing they do is done for the glory of God. Nothing they do has eternal value. It's all relatively good stuff. But you and I can do eternally good stuff. You and I can do righteously good stuff. You and I can do godly stuff. And he says, that's the way that I want you to be. And he says, in the way of those sinners, those who miss the mark, and by the way, it's Romans 3.23, all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. Coming short of the glory of God, that's missing the mark. Our world fires the arrow and then draws the target where it lands. And God says, target's over here. You're headed in entirely the wrong direction. It's about the glory of God, not about what you want and the things that matter to you and the way you think. Okay, so... God says, I want you not to stand in the way of sinners. And the word stand, it, there, there are two ways to stand. You could be seated and stand up. That's usually the word rise in the Old Testament. Stand in the Old Testament has one of two implications, but it always has the word, implication, this word, of stop. So we've got a progression. You were moving toward a goal, the goal of the glory of Jesus Christ, but now you've stopped. You're standing now. There are two reasons you stop and stand. One is to rest. I'm tired. I'm out of energy. And so I rest. Well, if you rest in the way of sinners, that's not really refreshing, is it? Um, one of the fascinating things to me about our culture, again, is that uh, we really like our vacations but we pack so much into our vacations, we need a break when we get back so we can recover from our vacations. We are not refreshed. We are not equipped for what God has in store for us next. We are absolutely wiped out. That was really restful, wasn't it? 
what we do instead is we find something that is different, more enjoyable, fun. I was talking to my dad the other night uh, about Florence, South Carolina, where I, uh, Laurel and I lived before moving to Green Bay. I pastored a church there for 10 years. But in, in that, that town, they decided that they wanted to be a convention town for the state of South Carolina. They wanted everybody to come to Florence, South Carolina and hold their business meetings. Well, in order to do that, they knew they had to entertain people. I, I prayed that they wouldn't do it. I prayed that they wouldn't build a convention center and they wouldn't try to entertain people because when people want to be entertained, it's sin that entertains. And you're inviting something into your city that you don't want any part of. What he's saying is if, if the stand is a rest, where do you rest? Are you resting in things that are sinful? And it's, it's not that they're not good. Movies are good. TV is wonderful. I'm not here to tell you not to watch TV or not to watch the movies. That's between you and God. It's not between you and me. Just do it with your mindset on the right things. But when you do that stuff, understand this. If you're going to refresh, if you're going to be equipped to live the life that God has called you to live, and it's, by the way, uh, this is for free. Um, the Christian life is not hard. Really, it's not. It's impossible. You will not do it apart from grace. You cannot live in the power of you the life that God has called you to live in his word. Only by grace will you live that. And so if you're going to get refreshed to live that life, then you need grace. And you aren't going to get that from the world. You aren't going to get that from people who have set their minds on hitting a target other than the glory of God in Jesus Christ. You're only going to get that, says the psalmist, in God alone. My soul, says Psalm 62.1, finds rest in God alone. That's it. Okay. But the second way that the Bible uses the word stand is to take a stand. It's to draw a line in the sand and to say, I won't go past this. What are the things that you defend? All too often, I hear people in our circles, and I don't mean just Christian circles in the United States, I mean OPC circles, defending things that I'm thinking, what are we defending that for? You and I are called to give a defense. 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to do what? Give a defense for the latest movie. Your favorite political party. Why you bought that car instead of another car. No, always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you. Movies, cars, jobs, political parties don't give hope, especially in our country. What gives hope is God. What God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And when people ask, why are you hopeful? And nobody asks I wonder if you really look it. Do you look like in the face of what's going on? There's hope. There is. It's in God. And the miracle that he can do in changing people's hearts and minds. Always be prepared to defend the gospel. Where do you take your stand? He says, don't do it in the way of sinners. Defend instead. What you and I need to do is go for the best. We need to go for the biblical in the way we think. We need to go for the best in what we value. The problem is 
that we value something other than the best. Now, the enemy of the best is not the worst. I mean, that's the opposite, is it not? The enemy of the best is not the worst. The enemy of the best is not the bad. The enemy of the best is the good because you settle for that and you don't go for the best. You know, it's the, again, really old TV commercial. I could have had V8. No, you could have had God. We, we think. You know, God says, if you know me, I'll give you pleasures forever at my right hand. When I was a kid, that meant playing baseball all the time. I was going to go to heaven and play baseball all the time. I don't have the energy anymore to play baseball five minutes a day, let alone all the time. God says, no, what you get when you come to me is me. It's not what's in my hand. You get me, says God. That's what you need to value. Let him who boasts boast in this. What? That he knows me. Not that he has what I have. You can have that, but you can have me, says God. That's the blessing. Happiness is placed on what you value. We value what the world has to offer. The Bible says, what's it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? God says, what I've created in you are new desires. Philippians, I believe it's 2.13. It's he who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. The desires that you have have been replaced by a new desire for the glory of God in Jesus Christ. God works in you to make that happen. So Paul's able to say, I, this new creation, want to know him, the power of his resurrection. And then he goes on, I hate that next phrase, and the fellowship of his suffering. I even want the bad stuff in life. I rejoice in that because of what God is doing in me. When I was a kid, uh, I was the oldest of four kids. Uh, any toy that I wanted to play with, my siblings immediately wanted. It didn't matter what toy I picked up, my siblings decided that was the toy that they wanted to play with, and I was this evil, awful older brother that stole it from them. They're all bigger than me now, and they beat the snot out of me. <laughs> anyway, back then I was still big enough to defend, that's my toy, I got it first. One of the interesting things that I learned really early on was that if I pretended that I desired the, the toy that nobody wanted, they would want it, and then I could have the toy that I really wanted to play with. <laughs> I tell you that just to say this. It's possible. You know, I got to a point where I even wanted to play with that toy. You can change your desires. You can change what you want. By the power of God's grace, you can choose to say, what I want is God. And then you discipline yourself. Not the one thing. You discipline yourself to the means of grace so that God changes what you want. And what you really want then is God. The third phrase that God used is, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And again, he reverses the word order. He says, in the seat of scoffers, not he sits. So he wants us to understand seat of scoffers first. All right, so what's a seat? Well, Jim, duh, we're all sitting down. Do you think we don't know what seats are? The word seat, in, even in our culture, means something more than just a place where you uh, get off your feet and rest. It's usually a place of judgment. In fact, in our court system, where a judge works, we call the bench. In sports, that's not a good thing. But in court, it's really a good thing. He sits on the bench, and he sits in judgment. God's saying, 
What I want you to do in this progression of life, I want you to stay walking. <laughs> I want you to, by the way, if, if you quit walking, we, we got this idea in life that we can coast through it and be Christians. If you're not walking and striving to grow in grace, you're already losing ground. You cannot stand still and become more and more like Jesus. You've got to work at it. So he's already stopped and taken a stand, but now he says, I'm going to sit. And I'm in the seat. And it's a seat that's a seat of scorners, mockers. The word literally means simply to open your mouth. But it's used in a negative sense all but once in the Old Testament. It's to open your mouth derisively. It's to scorn others. Why do we do that? In part because it's funny. You know, we pay comedians an awful lot of money to make fun of people. Do we not? And some of the, in my lifetime, Don Rickles was one of the most revered comedians, and he made a whole career out of picking on people. We used to have a guy in Boston, I won't tell you his name, he'd been the pastor of Ruggles Street Church in Boston, and he started a radio ministry, they called it Song Time. And then he decided to start a thing called Youth Time. And from 16 to 25, I just loved that guy, I worked with him for a while. But his thing was, was to pick on people. I mean, he was merciless. He was a preacher, and he could make more fun of you than anybody ever could. He was the Don Rickles of Christendom. He was awesome at it, and I'd laugh. I don't like it anymore. I still like him, but I don't really want to pick on people. God did not call you and me to tear any people and tear people down. It takes no special skill to tear people down, even though we pay good money for people to do it. God calls you and I instead to build one another. He says to the Apostle Paul, or Apostle Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians, he says it twice, God gave me authority not to tear you down, but to build you up. That's our job. To build one another up. We're to proclaim the gospel, both to believers and unbelievers, in an effort to see them become more and more like Jesus Christ. To build people up. I don't need to tear anybody down. I need to build people up. So he says, I don't want you to sit in the seat of those who make fun of other people. Now, the word sit has to do, idea here, has to do with permanence. The word uh, sit in the Hebrew also means to dwell. It's to sit or take up your living space. I'm tired of the walk. I'm not even going to stand around and rest or defend something. I'm going to settle down right here. And he says, okay. You can settle down, but understand this. Don't do it in the seat of those who sit in judgment. Critical, negative judgment of those around us. Happiness that's godly is based on one's vocation. And by that, I simply mean this. I don't mean that it's based on the work that you do for your provisions in life, the work that God sees that you get paid for so that you can provide for you and your family. It's the work that you do on God's behalf. What is your work? Our work is to build others up. We do it in part because of the comedic effect, but in part we do it because we want to feel better about ourselves. You know, if everybody else is worse, I feel better about me. It's it's the wrong comparison. It's pride. Sinful pride is not, I did a good job. Sinful pride is, I did better than you. (laughs) Or, I can't do as well as you. That doesn't sound like pride. That sounds like humility, Jim. No, it's pride because it's comparing yourself to the wrong standard. 
The standard's God. And he says to you and me, when you compare yourself about me, you'll think of yourself not more highly than you ought to think. You'll think of others better than yourselves. You'll think of others more than yourselves. You'll do what I want you to do, and you'll build other people up. He says to you and me, speak the truth to one another in love. What would better that other person? How do I build other people up? Many of you know Roger Hubricks. Uh, Roger is 96 years old. Roger says, I don't buy green bananas anymore. But uh, anyway, 13 years ago, we added on to our building. And Roger was the guy in charge of the whole thing. He was on site every day speaking with the, the supervisor and the, of the contractors. Uh, he went out of the country for two weeks. He called every day from Poland to make sure everything was, was right. We ran into a problem in the scheduling in that the man who was supposed to build the shelving in the library and the shelving in the senior pastor's office didn't show up when he was supposed to. And after about three days, Roger wanted to know what was going on. So he got the name of the subcontractor from the overseeing uh, people, and he called him, and he said, what's up? And the guy says, well, I'm, I'm sorry you found me. Roger says, why is that? He says, well, I'm, I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. I had no money, so I took the money that you gave me to buy supplies, and I spent it on my debts. And I still wasn't able to pay them off. I have no tools, no supplies, and so I'm not coming. I don't know about you. I'm angry. We spent good money on you. You're a thief. I'm really ticked. I love, I, I cannot tell you how proud I am of the fact that I am Roger Hubrick's pastor. Because Roger Hubrick said, what can we do to fix it? How can we help? I went, wow. He showed that man grace. That man came, and with Roger's help, both in supplies, in tools, and in labor. Help that man build the shelving for our office and the shelving for our pastors, or, or excuse me, for our library. You and I are called, Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. Well, what's that got to do, Jim, with what you just talked about? The word that's translated there, forgiving, is the word grace, used as a verb. It says, what I want you to do is be kind, tenderhearted, gracing one another even as God in Christ has graced you. If we're tearing people down, we're not showing grace. We're not demonstrating that we're the people of grace. You and I, in case you didn't know, we're Presbyterian. We study what's called the doctrines of grace. I grew up Baptist. I did not grow up Calvinistic. I did not grow up covenantal. I did not grow up with a, an idea of connected. We were independent. We couldn't get along with anybody. <laughs> Nonetheless, what I discovered when I came to Presbyterianism is that um, sometimes, even though you believe the doctrines of grace, we could be the least gracious people in the world about it. We're right. <clears throat> and we will beat you up to prove it. God says, I want you to grace 
one another. Speak the truth to one another in love. I want you to build one another up. I want you to go for being a blessing to others. Okay. Godly happiness. It's happiness God's way. We could go on to to verse 3 and define what that looks like. We can go on to verse 2 and talk about the Bible. There's four words and phrases there that you need to look at to understand what that's about. But I, I want you to understand two things. Well, three. One, two, one I didn't put in your notes. The first is that God's happiness is really being like God. It's God-likeness. It's God's way of thinking because we're in God's Word. It's God's best because we have God's value system. And it's God's building or God's construction project of other people because we choose to use the grace that God has given us to grace others. But the second thing I want you to note about it is that it's God-given. In spite of the fact that what we're looking at is a formula for prosperity or a formula for uh, wisdom or, or a formula for happiness, if I understand the implications, and at least I infer this from verse 1, there are three things that you need to understand about verse 1. Blessed is passive. It's not bless yourselves. It's not go get this blessing. It's blessed. Having been blessed, it's passive. It's something that God does to me. The second thing that I understand from it as I look at it is it sounds like a permanent state. Happiness is fleeting, comes and goes, but the blessed state is permanent. I'm always the child of God. I always know forgiveness of sins. I always know the grace of God in Jesus. That's a permanent state. But then thirdly, it's profuse. Jesus said, I've come that my joy might be in you and you might have just a little bit of it. You might taste it. No! Jesus said your joy might abound. You're allowed to talk at that point. Jesus said, I want your joy to abound. I want you to enjoy the bliss of knowing and having me. But the third thing I want you to note about it is that what it's not something that I do in order to achieve the blessed state. The fact that I'm doing it says that I'm already blessed. I've already got the blessing of a new way of thinking. I've already got the blessing of a whole new value system. I've already got the blessing of grace. I've already been blessed. I just need to live like that. One last movie illustration. It's a movie called The Jewel of the Nile. I believe it starred Michael Douglas. And he thought that the jewel of the Nile was this really expensive and historical gem that was going to set him up for life with the money that he knew he wanted. It turned out, spoiler alert, it turned out the jewel of the Nile was a person. What's that got to do with this, Jim? The blessedness about which the Bible speaks is a person. His name is God. His name is Jesus Christ. If you know him, you are blessed. Now think like it. Now strive for it in your value system. Now serve others. You think about that. Heavenly Father, in the name of the